and welcome to this episode of Critical Support, your source for highly conditional, completely correct, uh, heavily caveated takes on basically everything. And clearly, yes. I don't normally do these because I said those in the wrong order. So, uh, today but on this episode... I have critical support for your intro, Preston. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Gabe. And, uh, yeah, so I'm Preston. That was Gabe giving me an unnecessary compliment. <laughs> Um, and uh, who else we got on here? I'm Teresa. I'm Jacob. All right. So, uh, with our first topic, Teresa, what have you got for us? Do we wish to uh, extend our critical support to germophobia? Germophobia? Mm. Yeah. Oh, damn. This is a hot button issue. <laughs> so, we, we know... Being a germaphobe can be um, problematic. We definitely, as a Western culture in particular, definitely swung the needle too far in certain respects. And we face like the prospect of superbugs and whatnot because of excessive germophobia. But also, we do live in an age with pandemics and they're only going to become a bigger problem <laughs> uh, moving forward. And this situation with coronavirus is kind of making everybody have to be a germaphobe. And it's like, you actually do have to <laughs> like, it's like the socially responsible thing to do. So yeah, I thought it would be interesting to talk about whether or not we wanted to support germophobia right. critically. Interesting. Well, okay. I think uh, that's the perfect topic for the show because it's like, uh, extremely vague and like impossible to point down exactly what quantifies a germaphobe. So we can like yell at each other a lot about this. Um, now, this episode of Crossfire. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I guess I've kind of been, you know, over the past couple weeks, I've kind of been fuming about this a little bit because I've seen a lot of my uh, friends and, and just people that I know online really angry about like people i know online specifically people who live in suburban or rural areas basically saying like you shouldn't be leaving your house at all like how dare you go to the park how dare you walk around your neighborhood and then people saying like a sneeze can travel up to 27 feet like you shouldn't even leave your house ever you're that's really horrible and i think it like taking germophobia really far and forgetting that many people don't have yards many people don't have balconies you know if you live in like uh i don't know fucking thurston county you can you know walk outside your house and take a very you know you you might have like woods behind your house and walk around in the woods and never encounter a single other person but obviously if you live in seattle that's not possible and I, I personally believe that it's good to get uh, fresh air. And so it's perfectly fine to take a walk around your, your neighborhood. And I don't know where the line is drawn on germophobia, but I see people who, who really are taking this so far and saying that it's like wrong to leave your house at all. And I, I think to me, that's germophobia, like being so afraid of anything that... You, you know you want to have the police come in and, and do a lockdown of everyone and and you know use violent state repression to force everyone to stay indoors but 
I think that's, I do not extend critical support to that. I do extend critical support to, you know, taking extra precautions in this time period. But uh, I think, I think there are limits in my opinion. Yeah. And what those people are forgetting. I've, I've also seen that um, from a certain uh, type of person who frankly has the ability to stay at home. Uh, they're either laid off or they are, they're working tech employees right now. Who work yeah, from home. They're a, a tech worker of some uh, shape or form. Um, and there are still millions of people going to work every day. Uh, I right. saw most most people actually. Yeah, majority I, I, of people. I saw a photo earlier today of um, a, a subway. I believe in New York, it was packed at like six p.m. And it was like that's that's still the way it is for a good part of the country where people don't have the option to just stay home. And so the people flipping out about anyone leaving their home or seeing a friend or whatever, it's like I think a lot of that is a massive overreaction from people who want to be, they want to feel like they're doing something, but they're actually not. They're just attempting to, like what they are calling for doesn't accomplish anything except them not doing something. I mean, I mean them, them feeling like they have done something. Um, right. Like right. if you, if you want to see, if, if you want to uh, see a friend and you go uh, walk around a park and you don't hug, and you don't whatever, that's fine. Like, you know, they, they, they kept showing these there for, for, for a while there, there were these photos going around of like various parks and public places. There still had quite a few people. And it's like, what are those people doing? They're just wandering around, not all that close to each other. Like, that's not yeah, a problem. Right. Like, it's different than, you know, a giant party atmosphere at a spring, you know, spring break in Florida. That's, that's a very, you know, these are different things. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm highly against germophobia in general. I consider it, uh, frankly, neurotic. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's a type of neuroses that is widely acceptable in our society when the reality is, except for cases like this, it's completely unnecessary for most people in most times. Uh, As someone who, who has allergies, uh, I blame germophobia partly for me having allergies. Right, because it, it has contributed to like a general weakening of our immune systems, right? Yeah, the science is not settled on that, but I still will blame germaphobes. It, it's not actually a weakening. It's actually um, a, a You're just not of, used exposure. Right, yeah, it's a lack of exposure. Um, yeah, the way it worked uh, was for uh, – there was a small uptick. Uh, I have a peanut allergy, and so there was a small uptick in peanut allergies kind of in the early 90s among kids like not a lot but just like they noticed a little bit more kids are getting peanut allergies and so doctors were like so oh severe. shit don't don't feed them peanuts just don't just don't do peanuts we're not going to do peanuts and uh we'll, we'll come back to it and then after that happened then it fucking skyrocketed tons of people started becoming allergic to peanuts and what they discovered was oh we by recommending people don't feed their kids peanuts we totally made it so that no one ever adapted to be able to eat the peanuts um, so we've actually caused uh, the allergy to become, you know, uh, basically people didn't become desensitized. Pean uh, a mild peanut allergy can be worked through often by children and they, they eventually get through it. Um, but it doesn't happen for everyone. In my case, mm -hmm. when I was a baby, I was like busting out in hives. And so they're like, okay, we're not going to try to make him figure that one out. Right. But you know, for a lot of kids who have like mild peanut allergies when they're kids, you could, it's one that is uh, straightforward to outgrow, but because there was a lot of preciousness around giving kids peanuts, you know, um, then they never outgrew them. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I, I think it's kind of right there in the title, like phobia. Like phobia implies something that's like irrational, um, <laughs> right? Like I have a fear of large animals. I don't call that a phobia. I call that just reasonable fear of like I don't want to get mauled by a bear, right? And so there is a degree of like reasonable fear of not wanting to get COVID. That's fair. Like, uh, but that, that there's a difference between like I wash my hands regularly and I'm not sticking my hands in my mouth and I'm not, you know, touching my face and I'm, you know, I'm doing a reasonable and I'm cleaning after myself and all that. And like washing your hands like every five minutes and to the point where your hands are cracking or, um, you know, constantly going to some hand sanitizer and never leaving your house. Like, um, there, there are levels of distancing or, or there's just levels of behavior that are, are, um, you know, at some point it's diminishing returns to the point where you're more hurting your own health right. that are actually helping stop the pandemic. Right. Well, what's um, funny is that it's like, there's COVID, which is obviously the highest priority and the worst thing generally, but sitting indoors in in a in a small cramped space all the time is extremely bad for your health it's very bad for your health i mean like like for people who live in apartments especially if you don't have a balcony or a courtyard or something to just sit inside your house all the time there's probably mold to a certain degree there's definitely going to be dust and other allergens uh there could be bugs you know uh there could be like toxic Hey, there's more bugs outside situations. There are more bugs outside than there are inside. As a no, I'm not talking well, about the number of bugs. I'm talking about stuff like bed bugs, cockroaches, ants. I mean things that like thrive in your house that can be bad for you. There's um, what is, what, how much of an infestation do you have in your house, Gabe? <laughs> I don't, but I'm just saying, like, like those are common situations to have in an apartment, and to be like aggressively demanding that people not leave their apartment for any unnecessary circumstances. Like do not leave your house to walk around the neighborhood and get fresh air. Like that's bad. It's ignoring the fact that like sitting in your enclosed small space and just breathing the same air over and over is actually, that's also very bad for you. And you know, you don't have a sterile space in your house, you know, so you're, you're introducing all kinds of things just from getting groceries and whatever. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think it's a matter so much of the sterility of the house as much as just being and like being cooped up is quite bad for your right. in general. And it's like, I mean, it's like there there was that clip of a, a mayor in Italy that was like mad at people. He was like, "Why, you know, everyone's why why is everyone a marathon runner now? What what is this? Just stay <laughs> at home." And it's like, on one hand, yeah that's you know all of a sudden everyone has decided that they're going to be like super active and whatever and it's like but on the other hand uh people are uh, trying to stay sane and staying active is actually really important for your health both physically and mentally and if you don't have a lot of time like i would rather go hiking than go running but one of these things is an option and the other is not yeah so i i think it's pretty clear at this point that i'm going to be the the resident uh, germaphobe. <laughs> um, but I, I want to um, justify that a little bit with some context, <laughs> which includes, number one, I take care of an, an elderly um, 
my my elderly mother who is in the high risk category due to her age and also lives in a senior living apartment complex um so i don't want to be risking her life and also everybody in that apartment building's life by like uh bringing any sort of covid uh contamination into her living space um and then the other thing too is that i work in food service and there's a certain mandatory level of germophobia that you are supposed to have just like Preston was talking about like washing your hands so much that they crack everybody right that I worked with had completely cracked painful hands like if we put on uh, a Purell it would like sting and burn for <laughs> like you know 30 to 60 seconds until it dried and I don't know yeah, I had a kind of I had a, a sort of interesting moment last week when I was going to Trader Joe's and um, and we had to they were only letting a certain number of people in the store at a time and there was this very very long line outside of the store you know it was, just, it was partly long because it was socially distanced line you were supposed to just stand six feet apart from the person the people in front of us um, I was in the back of the line and the first person that came up to line up behind me like wanted to stand like she came up right behind me and I and I had to like raise my hands and be like six feet please (laughs) yeah right you know like and she was sort of taken aback and was like oh yeah right right right." (laughs) but it's just I don't know it's it's interesting I I am definitely feeling like pretty neurotic every time I leave the house and even when I get home from doing uh anything out outside but i don't know well i guess to me all those things um it's it's again it's what i was saying before like what is what catholic what counts right now is germophobia and what counts as reasonable public health precautions and like to me those i don't know to me those all sound pretty reasonable like germophobia i think again it's like in the name what preston said germophobia like means overly unreasonably afraid of germs so to me the, those things all sound very like reasonable and straightforward like to me at least germophobia right now overly being overly unreasonably afraid is people saying no one should be allowed to go outside ever for any reason that's not completely necessary and i don't know like stuff like that stuff that's maybe maybe too far like demanding that the police be, be fighting people, you know, be ticketing people for, you know, maybe making an extra trip. To me, Teresa, that, that sounds very reasonable. It's like, well, okay, we're all supposed to say six feet away and someone gets up in your business. And it's like, in that situation, you're standing outside in the line. It's perfectly, you have an opportunity right there to stand six feet away. Like, you're not passing each other on the sidewalk where there's no physical way to be six feet apart. You're standing in a line. It's, it's perfectly, you're perfectly able to be six feet apart. So you should, that sounds totally reasonable to call someone out on that. Although, I mean, maybe not Seattle normal, but, uh, (laughs) you know, thank you. that doesn't sound like germophobia (laughs) to me. That just sounds like, you know, that's what you're supposed to do right now, but uh, I don't know. Thank you. I feel very vindicated. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of uh, 
precautions that are reasonable right now that aren't reasonable the rest of the time. Um, I don't think that means that a lot of people aren't kind of using this to my anecdotal sense is there are some people who are taking this as a vindication for every little bit of germophobia they have ever had um, <laughs> and are sort of seeing this as their excuse to indulge that and yeah so it's like i would say no critical support for germophobia uh germophobia is not reasonable precautions right now so like yeah i mean when i get home i wash my hands pretty well and then I don't worry about it anymore because I, I, I do it right when I get home and then I'm done and I don't worry about like touching my face or you know any any shit it's like if I'm out yeah I avoid it but like yeah I'm with Jacob like I think if you say like you know if you were a, an obnoxious germaphobe before and you use <laughs> sort of grand vindication of your, of your eternal vigilance uh then no fuck you right like this isn't this is not the time for that uh, there was that that Lonely Island music video a long time ago, uh, YOLO, where the, the joke is basically they live in a bunker and uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's like no, like that's that's still insane. Like, you know, yeah, it happened, but that doesn't mean you were right to suffer the rest of the time, right? Like, I think it can be sort of like a look how I suffered. Um, right. Yeah, and I, I want to echo Gabe and like Teresa, like what you are, your particular situation. Um, it sounds completely reasonable, you know, in your role as like a, a caretaker to like not want to, you know, to keep yourself healthy so that your your family can stay healthy. So, um, you know, I I don't follow you and know exactly the levels of your germophobia. Uh, but um, it, that doesn't really sound like germophobia as much as just like enforcing the public health precautions that we're all trying to take. So, yeah, uh, you know, I still think I'm against germophobia. You know, if we're going to say like critical support for obnoxious amounts of hand washing, then we might have to be like, well, we kind of depend on the situation, right? Um, yeah, I would give my critical support to obnoxious amounts of hand washing, but, but germophobia as a whole, no. Okay, so should we bring this to a vote? Um, it, it sounds like three of us are pretty solidly against it. And then, Teresa, I don't know if you want to be against it on the grounds that what you're doing right now is not germophobia, or you want to be for it just to, make, just to cover all your bases. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think you guys have the, uh, the correct position, but I also... Like the way I was coming at it was germophobia, not a super literal way, which is kind of the way that you all took it. Like this is a phobia and that's irrational, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, you, you brought it to the panel and we decided. <laughs> so I, I was thinking of it in like looser kind of more colloquial way. Sure. And, right. and in that respect, I'm going to say, I think that germophobia right now is like the socially responsible way to be. So, um, yeah, I am going to extend my critical support to germophobia. It is highly critical for all the reasons you guys put forward. And also because it's it, in other contexts, it can be socially irresponsible. It can be socially irresponsible um, for, you know, again, going back to like, the creation of like super bugs because of 
uh, nobody having any sort of exposure to microbes, basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> that's, I, that's my position. Very well. Principle of dissension it is. Dear listener, walk around outside. Just do it. Just stretch so, out. <laughs> but yes. remain six feet away from other people. and Unless you live with them. Then you can, you know. Then you're fucked anyway. So just like, just, just go all so in. Just uh, go on. No, wait. Better, better. Go, uh, dear listener, go on your one uh, daily state-approved walk every day. Key, key phrase, state-approved. All right. Does anyone else have a topic that they would like to go with? Just a quick note before these next few segments. Uh, these are more older material from roughly uh, December of 2018, previously unreleased, um, which is why we're all going to sound like we're in the same room. Uh, and also we're going to reference some upcoming political developments at that time, uh, which it, were still upcoming. Um, you'll know what I mean when, I, when we get there. Anyways, back to the show. Critical support for uh, Maoist guerrillas in India. <laughs> Gabe, I think that's on you. Mm, well, this is a pretty complex one, and I admittedly have very little knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> the best way to start. <laughs> I mean, so basically, right, there's like uh, various Maoist guerrilla rebel groups, mostly in northern India, in and around the Himalayas, and also neighboring Nepal, that started their struggles around the same time that Mao rose to power in China and originally received significant funding and uh, military equipment, but no longer do, but their guerrilla struggle continues for a, I guess, some sort of like very pure Maoist uh, society that they are fighting for. And my understanding is that there's like certain regions that they actually more or less control. And I have no idea what life is like for people in those regions so I can't speak to whether there's any sort of proven success, but sort of an interesting leftist case study, the 60-year-long guerrilla war that seems to just be unending in northern India. Hmm. Yeah, I, I also don't know a lot about this, but um, I, I would amend from what I understand that it's a, it's a region known as the uh, Naxalite Belt that runs from the very like northeast corner of India down like well into like the western part of central India um, in sort of rural somewhat mountainous areas where there's been pretty continuous um, Mao-ish uh, guerrilla activity for like much of the last 50, 60 years. So they're like literally living protracted people's war. Like that's that uh, kind of deal? To one degree or another, yeah. Mm. I, I don't know a lot about it i'm not sure how continuous like you see these maps of this like giant red swath through india and it's like areas where there have been attacks and so is that like one person bombing a police station or is this like an extended area where they've like taken control of the local government i don't i don't actually know i mean i i too know very little about this but i think i'd perhaps give critical support to to them on the basis of their fighting the capitalists. Um, they seem in some ways... I mean, what immediately comes to mind is um, the Zapatista movement, although I, I, I would say there's probably a lot of difference there too. But yeah, I don't know. I'd probably, on the basis of 
near total ignorance. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is the best base. My first inclination would be critical support. Um, yeah, I'd have to say the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know about the whole thing mostly through uh, a series of lectures by a professor named uh, uh, Vinay Lal, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Um, and uh, yeah, he was a complete liberal and really terrible about them and was like, they do these things, but also they believe in like violent revolutionary whatever. And that's, you know, not what, you know, Gandhi wanted or said it was, it was well, that's a bad, uh, that's a bad representation of what he was saying. But um, he dismissed him on those grounds and I, that really bugged me. So uh, if just for... Um, uh, just to owning the libs, yeah, just to own the libs, <laughs> just uh, fuck Vinay Law, um, yeah, critical support for Malice Gorillas in India. Sure, there we have it. There we have it. Okay, um, how about uh, critical support for uh, the Fremont Lenin statue? It's a local one right here, a local celebrity. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, this is another one I just sort of popped in my head. You know, I think it's really cool. It has <laughs> it has the hand-painted red, which has always bothered me, but to symbolize blood on his hands. Do we know who did that? Or, like, when, roughly? I don't remember. Okay. The statue wasn't put up that way, though. It was, like, I guess a... Quote, Do you guys know vandal. the history of the of the statue? I know a little bit. Yeah, I also know a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what I know of the history of the statue, it was basically during the 90s when, you know, the Soviet Union's collapsing and suddenly there were all these statues they had that they were, like, uh, not so hot about anymore that were just sort of, like, sitting in random corners of... I, I feel like that'd be so wild just, like, walking around in some, like, suburban area of Russia and just seeing, like, a, a wild statue of Lenin just appearing out of the corner of your eye. Like, huh. But anyway, they had all these statues, and there was this one guy traveling around who saw, like, a giant statue. The statue is, like, 12 feet, probably. Oh, I think it's weird than that. 12, between 12 and 20 feet. And yeah. It's a very tall statue. And it's Lenin basically looking pissed the hell off, going like, yeah, I'm Lenin, more or less. Big dick energy. Big dick energy, right, yeah. Sort of uh, vaguely impressionistic, like flames and broken buildings and stuff. Yeah, yeah, he, it's Lenin the revolutionary, not the intellectual. And he's just, like, looking pissed the hell off. And for whatever reason, there was a guy in who lived in Seattle who thought, damn, that's a sick statue. I'm sad that's about to go get melted down because, you know, post-Soviet era... I want to save it. So he bought it for like nothing and then shipped it for probably a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, this thing's huge. But then he didn't have anywhere to put it. And so he just put it down in the middle of this park in the middle of Fremont. It's not a public park. It is private land. I thought I'd heard it was it was going to be the centerpiece of a Polish restaurant. That this that this guy paid to have like the guy owned the restaurant had it paid to ship it over but then like the restaurant closed or that just never happened and that it ended up where it ended up yeah that sounds about right it's definitely not like a public park kind of deal it's just no. someone's yeah. little private triangle of Fremont yeah. that just happens to be in the middle of Fremont <laughs> yeah so what's with the red hand someone painted that after the fact yeah the owner didn't put that on there that's just been like various. 
it, uh, it like does get regularly years. vandalized. No, yeah. Yeah. Like that's part of its charm. It's like for Christmas they like put you know put yeah. put shit on him and Halloween and whatever. They just dress it up. Um, I don't know specifically about the red hand. Yeah, probably some liberal trying to be clever. Uh. Um, but yeah, so it's it it's like we you know we are Leninists. We read Lenin and sort of value his. Uh, contribution to Marxist theory and his revolutionary leadership, but um, that obviously has nothing to do with why the things in Seattle. It came there for strange capitalist reasons that are um, kind of bizarre, and so just like we can appreciate it, but we don't like um, what the fuck's the term? Um, we don't like fetishize it. Like we don't like go there and like stare at it like uh, a while back when like the right like right wing groups were trying to <laughs> okay, Teresa speak might. for yourself Teresa might but like no, I mean, if like, I lived in Fremont I might like Leninists in Seattle don't like venerate this statue like uh, like uh, when all of the, the protests of confederate statues were taking place like some right wingers tried to like protest the statue of Lenin and like no one gave a shit because... no Mayor Murray actually like in a speech Said he wanted the Lenin statue to come down. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, but this Jesus was just this was just before he like, yeah, even further embarrassed himself out of office. Yeah. Um. Yeah. He. Uh. But yeah. There, in an actual like press release, he he said yes, we should take down this Confederate statue. We should also take down the sta- the statue of Lenin, and we, everyone looked at him and goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It didn't make sense. By the way, I was joking. I do not go and worship at the Statue of Lenin. It's okay. Sure you don't trust me. <laughs> I may or may not believe you. <laughs> so do we are we are we in critical support of the statue? I might just be in broad, general support for yeah. the statue. I uncritical really, support. I think I think it's just a, un, a cool statue. Uncritical support? Qual- unqualified support. Un unqualified support mm-hmm. for the for the Fremont Lenin statue. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that was an option, um, but if if that is the if that is the view of the group, I certainly have no have no qualms really. My only qualm is the red hand. I dislike the red hand. The red hands are weird. I wish they could be cleaned off, but I also don't think it's worth spending really any resources no, to do that. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think that should be the the number one platform proposal for someone's <laughs> re-election campaign. <laughs> Remove Let's the red clean paint. up and protect the Lenin <laughs> No, we need we need to we need to convince uh, we need to convince Sean Scott to make that a platform his campaign. It's in his district. Yeah. Ooh. No it's not. Yeah it is. Yeah, it is. Lower it's Fremont in... is in District Four. Oh, it's a weird like the shapes are weird because Seattle because all the shapes are weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so critical support in the sense that we don't support the statement that is made by the red hands. Right. But um, other than that, yeah, critical support for the Fremont Lenin statue. Cool. Uh, critical support for anarcho-primitivists. All right, everyone's looking at me because I, I wrote I, this one down. Yeah, yeah, I, I, okay. I believe it's your fault. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to be real about this. Anarcho-primitivists probably aren't listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they listen That's, to podcasts. Ooh, yeah. yeah. So I don't, I don't feel, like, uh, worried about uh, offending them <laughs> by saying uh, I think any philosophy which requires the majority of humans to die 
is a bad philosophy and should not be supported. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not just, like, a natalism. That's just, like, let's murder people, or more or less, or through ignorance. Yeah. I think, like, anarcho-primitivism, to basically, like, revert completely back to, like, pre-industrial, pre-feudal, pre-slaves, just, like, pre... Pre-agriculture. Yeah, pre-agriculture. I mean, there's no way to support anywhere close to 7 billion people without agriculture. So, I mean, basically, the conclusion of their philosophy is that most of humanity has to die. And I think that's just it's just a bad idea. And I think, low-key, a lot of them are, like, kind of cosplaying indigenous people. So... Ooh. Yeah, I'm gonna throw that hot take in there too. <laughs> okay, so I think that is that is a valid critique of anarcho primitivism. That last point, not any of the other stuff you said, but uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, okay. So there there is a big difference between saying uh, I want to and I I want to kill the majority of the world's population so that the few remainder the few survivors can have um, a hunter gatherer lifestyle, and saying that our end goal utopian society isn't fully automated gay space luxury communism it's uh a hunter-gatherer lifestyle that's i think one of those is a valid the latter is a valid position to take i personally take that position to one to some degree and i i think the anarcho like i full disclosure used to be an anarcho-primitivist um that's how i identified for uh probably about three years um between early in college um and yeah, I mean, I, I just don't think that there's a way to do industrial civilization without everything that comes along with it. And that doesn't mean that the first step is to destroy industrial civilization. That's, I think, the position of someone like Ted Kaczynski or some of the more deranged anarcho-primitivists that, uh, that Gabe has described for us before. Obviously, it doesn't lead to any actually useful conclusions. Um, but I, I would offer critical support to anarcho-primitivism on, on the grounds that their their analysis of industrialism is ultimately correct. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. Um, the other the other way I've heard you describe it, Jacob, is like if there were a vast annihilation of human population due to either like nuclear war or environmental catastrophe, what sort of viable society could emerge? Merge from that and the most viable one to like having a sustainable and good quality of life moving forward would be a hunter gatherer lifestyle rather than trying to replicate the society we have now. It's like, and even just like looking at as Marxists, looking at Marxist analysis, it's like, when was society egalitarian? It was prior to ag- agriculture when humanity was organized in hunter other societies that being said like it is a it's a it's a qualified critical support because it seems unrealistic to me that we're going to move we're actually going to move in that direction and again i certainly wouldn't want what you're what you initially described it as like that seems like i'm not saying anarcho-primitists want to kill the majority of human <laughs> beings i'm just saying to exist in an anarcho-primitivist society most people on Earth have to die. But most people are going to die anyways. I, like I just, fundamentally disagree. No, I mean, yes, every, everyone dies. Yeah, every, everyone Obviously, is but I'm not... I don't, I don't believe that the human population is going to drastically decrease barring a nuclear holocaust. And but I, don't, I don't see that as inevitable. Would it be you know? so bad if it did? 
Yeah, like it'd if, be fucking no, horrible. Okay, no, but if not not through nuclear holocaust, but if if um, if slowly over time people yes. were just like, I'm comfortable. I don't need to reproduce kids. I mean, I yeah. guess if I saw that happening, if if we just sort of like equally chose to, you know, like stop having so many kids. I don't know why we would need to revert to a hunter gatherer society. Like if there was like so few people, why couldn't we just live in like a technologically advanced society because we take up so little space if there was like only a million people in the world or if there's only a billion people in the world, we could like live very comfortable lives and take up very little space and use very little resources because there wouldn't be that many of us, you know, and it's hundreds of years in the future when we could be extremely efficient. So like, I don't know, it just seems like a waste to like revert back. Depends on how much you like the technological society we live in now, I guess. And also it depends, crucially, the thing that we haven't added here is whether or not we're still under capitalism. It depends on whether we've achieved socialism. Well, it's anarcho-primitivist, right? So I don't know what, what, do they hold a transitionary step between our current society and a primitivist society? No, I'm talking about whether the the proposal you're putting forward that we could just have a smaller scale version of a technologically advanced uh, society in like hundreds of years in the future, and it would be just as fine. It wouldn't. I would argue it would not be unless it was a socialist society. It might be if it was a socialist society, but it it would easily. If it weren't, it would easily devolve into. It could easily. We could just recreate. Everything we oh well yeah I'm assuming that we're talking about an egalitarian <laughs> socialist future not like capitalism right smaller scale capitalism right just well but it it depends on what you think are the prerequisites for an industrial society you know whether 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 you think you can have an industrial society without mass environmental devastation or without capitalism really I'm I'm not convinced that you can I think the two like industrial Industrial society developed with capitalism and, it's, and is intrinsically tied to it. And I think if you remove one, you, you, you remove the other, especially if you're dedicated to any sort of like environmental vision of the world. I think that's fundamentally flawed because we have the technology to like power our entire world with green, tech, with green power. We have the technology... We also have the technology to do it efficiently and not extremely wastefully. But the problem is that people are making profit from using fossil fuels and there's not the political will to, like, redo the entire power grid to, like, you know, redo uh, our entire power structure, right? But if if we are advancing into a a social society where we can come together and say, hey, we want to live comfortable lives, but we don't want to pollute the world to do that. Like, we have the technology to do that. I don't, I don't see. I mean, well, I don't see the contradiction between in a environmentalism of, and you know industrialization. I mean, in a formal sense, we have the technology to do these things. In that, the, those technologies could be implemented, and the world would not collapse. Like we could remove fossil fuels, we could replace these with green energy, and there wouldn't be like mass death and devastation. That doesn't mean that industrial society without an energy source as abundant and readily available as fossil fuels is really possible long term. Like I, I, it means I don't know. it means that a sustainable non-death and destruction uh, transition away from uh, industrialism after capitalism is abolished is possible. Is I guess the way I see it. 
So, so wait, if I'm understanding your argument correctly, you're basically saying that industrialization itself is is like industrialization gave us capitalism. No, uh, the opposite. Oh, okay, okay. Capitalism gave us industrialization. So once we abolish capitalism, that will that will necess- necessitate the end of in- industry as we know it. I don't think it. I think that what will necessitate the end of in- industry as we know it is our desire to uh, live on an earth that can sustain life, and that uh, destroying capitalism will allow us to do away with industrialism in a way that doesn't annihilate the world's population. I guess that that's just very dependent on what you mean by industrialization, though. Like, I, I guess, do, do you mean the, this idea that we mass manufacture things and yeah. there's mass consumption and consumerism People, and things like that? Yeah, there are giant factories, giant uh, I mean, distribution I'm thinking networks. of, like, I like living in a house with electric lights, heat, plumbing, running water, being able to record podcasts, <laughs> make a video, call people on the phone, uh, watch TV. I like all those things, and frankly, I don't want to fight for a future without those things. <laughs> I think that's not worth my time. <laughs> so you don't think socialism is worth your time if you can't make podcasts and call people on the phone? I mean, to put it simplistically, yeah. I mean, I, I want these sort of, like, basic necessities of first world life, I guess, is what you'd call it. And I think that everyone in the world should be able to have that, you know? Yeah, I guess, like, I guess I'm curious what you would, what you would imagine society to be like in a deindustrialized, like a, like not in the American economic sense of deindustrialization, but Mm -hmm. like in a global deindustrialization sense, like right now, for example, we're sitting in an apartment in an urban neighborhood in the, in Seattle, in the United States recording a podcast sitting under electric light you know like is this situ- particular situation possible in your con- in your conception of anarcho capitalism right and i just want to say too i'm i'm very critical of all this i think the extreme hyper consumerism is bad i think it's a problem that i can like go on amazon and find 5000 different models of everything and like I'm bombarded by ads and that one company has this huge amount of control over my consumerism and that, you know, so much of this stuff is powered by fossil fuels, right? There's so much to critique there, but sort of the basic stuff like I want to be able to to be this comfortable, you know, (laughs) like. I mean, I think you might find that the the world as described by the sort of anarcho-primitivist ideas that I I am attempting to explain um, isn't less comfortable, like it isn't, you know, we don't need, we don't need all this stuff. Like we don't need our homes to be built this way. We could have homes, we could, you know, people, people built homes for, you know, millennia just that they just built themselves out of readily available materials. And they weren't miserable all the time because of that. Um, and to say that we move away from sort of large scale industry doesn't mean that we just abandon technologies completely. There's a certain amount that I think still would be, Sustainable on a small scale, local manufacturing um, in some ways, but I, this isn't like a well-developed theory. I have all <laughs> worked out. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that like we we shouldn't fetishize either direction. Like we shouldn't necessarily think like we have to drive to the stars, and we also shouldn't think we have to drive back to the ground. Yep. Like I think, hmm. I think picking either direction is myopic, and I mean it's it's a common refrain like. We don't know what the world after the revolution will look like. We mm-hmm. don't know what is necessarily 
if either of those directions is necessarily correct. But I think it is important that, like, we do sort of discuss these things and, and do try to, you know, reach people where they're at. I think there is definitely an element of truth to, like, people in early societies were not uncomfortable. But they did work, and, and they, in fact, you could argue they worked less than we do now, but they did do work that is different than we do now. And they did do work, and they did work a decent amount, like a, a decent amount that, whereas, like, today with our current productivity, we could all theoretically work a ton less than we do and arguably on on the same level as they did in sort of those earlier societies. So, yeah. y- you know, th- there's just a lot of things to weigh there. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think necessarily that going in either direction is bad. I just think we just need to go where people want to go. I think democratic that's something to be that can be democratically discussed after the revolution. Yeah. That we can all talk about that in a really real way and in a, in a really in a, in a way that isn't poisoned by capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, I, I can you know, I can have critical support for it, but like it's it's only in the like like I, I enjoy that idea and I'm unsure if what I think about it kind of thing. Yeah. So it's like if you start trying to imagine like what what uh you know a post revolutionary society would look like, say we have, you know, enough uh we massively overproduce consumer goods, so we don't all need to work forty hours a week anymore. Say we have to work uh five hours a week and say so instead of spending you know 40 plus hours in you know an apparel warehouse I spend five hours a week in an apparel warehouse and then I go home and then I don't have political work to do because the revolution has happened I don't have to spend all my time um, well trying to okay <laughs> but you have to come right you have to continue the process of of meetings right and like democratically continuing no society yeah. right so but I guess the, the point I'm getting at is one of the things that I at least would want to spend a lot of time doing in that situation is like small-scale agriculture ma- making you know myself and the community I live in as self-sufficient as possible so we don't have to eat this like gross mass-produced processed food <laughs> all the time um and you know I, I can see things sort of scaling up from there as communities increasingly took over um, oh, okay. so production of the of the the things they needed. Okay, so you see it as like as a result of efficiencies in industrialization, we ironically don't need industrialization. Is basically sort of your thought? Like as we don't need to spend time in industry, and we tr- basically need to find time to do things that we want to do. It turns out producing for ourselves in a yeah. way would be more fulfilling than say like. You know, learning and you know, I feel like there's just a very broad variety of things that could be done though that yeah, aren't that. That's true. That's true. And I don't know. I think you'd have to find a lot. Of, I I think that's where the democratic process after the revolution comes in is sort yeah, of you yeah. start discussing. You know, there's going to be other mm-hmm. people like you, but is that going to be a majority of people? I don't know. I mean, one of the things I think about of primitive societies is that basically everyone had to spend all all their time like producing the necessary items for survival. I mean, I mean that's just flatly untrue. No, that's not true. They 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 spent very little time. They they probably spent about as much time like in the self-reproduction process as we do now. Like maybe a little bit more. I don't so, know. So I mean, between making I, food, taking care of kids, building your shelter, maintaining your shelter, like I mean, once your shelter's it depends on where you are and stuff, but like shelters are like in many cases semi-permanent and like we have to we have to do all those same things like 
make food or work to pay for the food that we buy that's convenience food um, or going out to eat or whatever. We have to take care of our kids or work to pay someone else to take care of them. It's like, like if you didn't have to work as if you only had to work five hours a five hours a week, like it would reduce the. It would reduce the GDP in a good way. Like, we wouldn't need so much right. stuff. We wouldn't need all these labor-saving devices constantly, um, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, what, like, in hunter-gatherer societies, that's why they didn't have to... That's why they spent so little time, like, working. Working wasn't even a thing. It was, it was self-reproductive activity, which is what we already have to do, or what we still have to do, now we just also have to work, you know, forty hours a week or more. So I'm I'm like referring to I've read about how, you know, the development of class society came, you know, with agriculture. It it basically um, allowed a class of people not to be doing self reproductive activity. Mm-hmm. Right. And and then the ag- and that's when people had to work a lot more because so, then they had to they not only had to reproduce their own existence but they also had to give a surplus of their labor it was usually in in days or like days or like land basically to the to the lord so in other words even though there is labor saving it goes that, to the it ends up that the labor saving I mean, goes not to the, the capitalists and the, obviously you're arguing that like well we don't in the future when the capitalists are gone we don't need to do that anymore right, right? and that no but sense. i'm just saying so then if before class society if everyone had to spend all their time like doing or the vast majority of the time doing self-reproductive activity like that no, but the, sounds like a bummer. The you know? point That's, is they didn't. They spent a few, they spent a few hours on the, uh, like a day on those, on those activities. I don't know if which, I believe that, but I mean, the, I, the, there is some pretty well established mm-hmm. research actually on this. The basic narrative that like Marx and Engels laid out of everyone spent all their time doing this work and then the capitalists, and then we developed a, a, a system where there was a surplus of food, so some people couldn't. That's actually not really true. That hasn't held up anthropologically. Um, and the basic class dynamics that Marx and Engels were talking about are true, and like that, that part of it, like how that class society developed in such a way that a, a group of people you know, were controlling the means of production and, and enslaving everybody else, but it doesn't actually that that was not actually enabled by the fact that suddenly there was excess time it's it had to do with who controlled the surplus of food that farming creates in a way that you don't produce a surplus when you're a hunter gatherer um but you simultaneously have plenty and also have plenty of time at least that that's how it looks when you actually look at these societies well i'll have to do some more research on that but i still I'm a technological boy. I like technology. <laughs> I frankly don't want to live in a world without technology. I mean, unless I absolutely have to, right? That's fair. So, I'm like yeah. such a wuss when I go camping. Like I can't even <laughs> like when I actually think practically about living that way, I'm like uh, I would die by mosquito bites or something. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. have so many allergies. Like I can't even fucking breathe through my nose. Like <laughs> How am I supposed to like be in the woods? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like I'm dependent on industrialism. I'll die by it. Yeah. Well, um, I think we might have to uh, agree to disagree on some level. Um, so, I guess we should take a vote. Um, I think 
I would uh, offer critical support to anarcho-primitivism. Um, what do uh, I, I believe Gabe do, uh, would not offer critical support? A hard no. <laughs> a hard no. What uh, what do precedents? Uh, I'm a soft yes in the sense that I don't I don't know if that's the ultimate answer, but I don't think there's anything I've heard that made me think it's wrong. Um, but I, yeah, we do need to be. I, I think we should just be careful not to fetishize it. I think that would be my perspective. Yeah, I think that's. I, I think that's fair. Um, I like Preston's caveat with the not fetishizing it. Um, yeah, I would say critical support for uh, narco primitivism, as the way Jacob described it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well. The measure has passed. We are offering our critical support to anarcho <laughs> Gabe will now Gabe's, go on strike I'm and end the recording. <laughs> I'm splitting the party and starting my own podcast. <laughs> right now. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Critical support for space exploration. Oh. Wow. So, um, uh... I think this one is. You should have saved this one for the 420 episode. Oh man, that that no, would have been 420 episode. Okay, well we're not. Uh, I mean, you can not? do a 420 episode, but you know, Jacob won't be participating. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, don't like the I don't like the mandatory um, pot smoking aspect of it, but otherwise, I'm fine with it. Are, are edibles okay? I. Uh-uh. Are we talking? Are we? Are we really having a critical support for a 420 episode? <laughs> you're right. You're right. That's a, that's a different time. That's a topic for a different time. This is about this is about space. This is about the final frontier. Okay. It's about so, the moon and stars and shit. Right. So, uh, I wanted to bring forward critical support for space exploration because I feel like this one. Um, there's a lot, uh, it's it can be pretty loaded. You know, I think in its highest sort of aspirational form. Uh, you know, you see, you know, we want to learn more about the world. We want to send probes into space. We want to, uh, we want to understand why physics and astrophysics work the way they do. We want to push the boundaries of human knowledge. Uh, we want to understand the world beyond, right? Like, you know, in its aspirational form, it's definitely sort of got a, a noble scientific connotation to it. You know, we want to learn more about the world that we don't know. Um, obviously the dark side of space exploration is it's incredibly sort of imperial overtones, you know, the space race between the United States and the USSR, um, the, uh, you know, development of rockets and rocket weaponry and missiles and things of that nature, you know, this whole space force thing that we have now, which is, yeah, that was, that's a thing that we have the competition for, uh, resources in space, you know, like, um, you know, there are these like asteroid mining companies who are like trying to get property rights on things in space, um, uh, which is its own sort of wildness and sort of, uh, you know, the, the madness sort of therein. So, um, you know, I think obviously, uh, there, there's a couple of dimensions to this. Um, and I think we should talk about critical support for space exploration i mean i think space is cool i like space i just read green mars so i'm like pretty stoked on on like colonizing mars right now oh wow okay uh uh wait so is that the is that the carl sagan where he's like Kim stanley robinson yeah Yeah. stanley robinson okay yeah yeah that book's pretty good 
which who was the guy who had the crazy like let's nuke Mars and then that'll create an atmosphere concept. Um, <laughs> uh, Fucking well, galaxy based, brain. Based on the uh, enormous eyes that Jacob had, like was like what the hell. Uh, <laughs> I want to be that galaxy brain one day. I dream <laughs> of being that smart. Where I could come up with something like that and present it seriously. Well, it'd be something to do with all the nuclear weapons. <laughs> Honestly, it's worth a shot. Let's do it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, going, <laughs> referencing an, an internal debate in um, in the Red Mars trilogy, would would it be you know to just launch every nuclear weapon at Mars and obliterate the landscape that currently exists? Is that uh, a responsible or moral or appropriate or whatever thing to do. Oh, I mean, not really. That really, we should just launch them all into like, you know, the at sun. the sun or something. <laughs> you know, it's where actually, they'll just evaporate. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to hit the sun, actually. Oh, is it's that true? very okay. hard. Because think about well, it. Just like, shoot them uh, off into space. Shoot them off into nothing. That sounds scary too, right? Like to to just kind of. <laughs> Who knows? Just throw them out there somewhere. Who knows? They might turn back around. And there was that Star Trek movie about like uh, that satellite that collected all the junk, and then like it was like the Voyager probe had like ended up gathering all this material and came back to Earth, and it was like sentient or something. That's, okay, that could that's, happen. Um, this no nuclear like, weapons become sentient all out there by themselves in space and turn around and come nuke us. Or, like, I just feel like, you know, that is, I don't know, it's literally loose nukes. You have no idea where they are. True. They're just not here. I think it'd be better to hit something. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's actually super hard to hit the sun because you, to hit the sun, you have to make it so that you uh, basically negate the Earth's orbit. Because when you launch something from the Earth, right, it's orbiting like the Earth is at the moment you launch it. And so you have to actually like go against it so that way it stops relative to the sun and then falls into the sun. But it's actually like super hard to do that. Like uh, when NASA sent a probe to the sun, they had to like, they were actually considering going all the way out to Jupiter and then like swinging it around and then hitting the sun. Like that's yeah. how like crazy the physics sort of gets. Which, I mean, not just you're that. launching nukes anyway. You have a lot of power, so you, you could. I mean, it's not, we could launch it into the sun, but <laughs> it's just not, not a fun time. Okay, so critical support for launching nukes to the sun. Um, that's the <laughs> uh, oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's generally, generally good. It's one of those things like, yeah, under capitalism, it would be bad, but not necessarily under other society. It's like, yeah. Same as everything else, and I, I I don't think I don't think it is correct to extend a sort of settler colonial critique to space or other planets or something like that. Um, I just don't think that ultimately holds up logically. Uh, something nobody, there's no one there. It's not even exactly. animals. There's nothing. I mean, if we encountered another society, or if there's you know squid people living under the ice on Europa or something. It'd be a different situation, but yeah, I mean, simultaneously though, it's not like the future, the way some people act like it is inevitable that earth will be exhausted and we will have to expand and space is the, our, our destiny or, and it's like, that's not, that's bullshit too. Yeah. I would, 
<clears throat> I'd be willing to extend my critical support to space exploration largely, if not entirely, on the basis that it provides a perfect answer to what to do with all the capitalist billionaires uh, <laughs> after the revolution uh, that already yes. are fetishized space exploration we can just shoot them off into outer space they can 20 be on that century first, guillotine right they could be on that first spaceship to like alpha centauri or some shit where we're like okay we need to we want to send some people to go explore the next star over but it'll take like 60 years to get there so good luck guys jeff bezos bill gates we're putting you on that ship maybe you'll come back maybe not good luck <laughs> so it'd be like galt's gulch in like a very small space station over like a century. Yes. <laughs> With all the billionaires. I feel like they would they would immediately I mean they wouldn't immediately murder each other. They would definitely murder each other. They would yes. definitely uh, <laughs> I mean that's kind of the point. That's great would, though. Yeah, that is like the they point. would or maybe they would like learn maybe they would all like learn the power of friendship and uh, perform <laughs> themselves and it'd be like a giant bonding experience and they'd come back as like perfect perfectly adjusted people um, who are no longer psychopathic. I mean if to me it sounds like a win in every scenario. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, like it's it doesn't have the moral quandary of you know, guillotines. It removes the ruling class. It liberates the working people. And if they, it's basically prison. Like, it's basically a prison, but they're okay with it. Like, it's just and, a long prison where they can't come back and kill us all. And you might actually get some interesting scientific information out of it in the end, so. Yeah, maybe. You know, who knows? Like, yeah, but maybe, right. maybe the material conditions in this spaceship make them realize, oh, there is labor... Labor is where value comes from, right? Like, oh, we have to do that, right? Like, oh, that's how that works. So critical support for gulags in space? <laughs> no. I, think, I actually think that is what we're proposing here. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what we've circled back around to. Space, space exploration's fine. It just has to be billionaires doing it. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to throw that, cat, that caveat on there. Uh, I think we need to focus on, on space exploration in general. <laughs> uh, I'm a, I don't know. I, I think the direction of, of gulags in space is fun. Uh, <laughs> that is the only condition upon, uh, of my extending critical support. To the only, okay, space. there we go. Yeah. Okay, very well. Yeah, I... I well, I will accept know, that condition. The more I think about it, the more I'm actually kind of enjoying it and as kind of like, a, well, that, that would be fun, kind of. <laughs> Kind of like fun things to think about for the revolution. Uh, but yeah, okay. The, uh, the like the launching apparatus then would be like a reverse guillotine. <laughs> like shoot some into space. <laughs> there, there would need to be all the references to it being a guillotine. It's in like a giant wooden slot, you know? Yeah. It shoots out the top. Someone has to pull a rope. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta just make it just completely symbolic yes the symbolicist such symbolism much wow <laughs> okay so it sounds like we've all come around to critical support for space exploration some conditional on gulags in space shall we call it then yes. yeah yeah listener thank you for hanging out 
uh, we will see you next week with our uh, awesome episode on Tiger King. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good night. Good night. To the hooker, can you come out to play? I've been condemning people all day long, that's how I get paid. My dreams are full of criminals, frolicking about. Open up the window, let the bad air out. Strangled by confusion, my mind is in decay. Can't picture tomorrow, can't remember yesterday. Send up for the black and decker and the psychiatric couch. Open up the window, let the bad air out. Nothing left to do but shout Open up the window, let the bed